morning, Team Fuel Lab community. Uh, welcome back to our second episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War here with our um, uh, our, our resident um, virtual right now, but he's we think of him as our resident Russian subject matter expert um, and to uh, to help again explore some of the some of the more top line issues in a in a briefer fashion on a on a quicker basis to help understand the the shifting dynamics on the battlefield. So I think today we're going to talk uh, on about territorial concessions and what both sides are sort of would accept potentially um, in a in some sort of negotiated end to the conflict. So Dr. Weber, good morning. Welcome back. And I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Uh, so on the topic of territorial concessions, the big issue here, obviously, well, there are many issues here, uh, but clearly the, the top several are what is the final status of Crimea? Uh, which was in a very um, specific turn of events, uh, declared its independence from uh, Ukraine in 2014 during the Euromaidan, um, violating the local Ukrainian law at the time, uh, declared independence, was an independent place, uh, asked for uh, admission into the Russian Federation, was gratefully accepted, and became part of the Russian Federation per Russian law. That was 2014. 2015, Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics were established on the backs of some local fighters, but mostly the Russian mercenaries and the Russian military. And obviously, over the past month, there has been a war between Russia and Ukraine, expanding Russian control over uh, different parts of uh, the rest of Ukraine, but more significantly, taking over the areas of land between Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics and Crimea, and in effect, creating a land bridge around the Sea of Azov and to connect, in effect, Crimea to the rest of uh, Russia by land. That's the land bridge that we're discussing. So in the midst of fighting, what have we seen so far? Brief recap, uh, should be no surprise, is that the first phase of Russia's uh, invasion has failed. The efforts have culminated and they're no longer able with the existing strategy, the existing operational concepts, uh, logistics and lines of communication and tactics in order to accomplish their main tasks, which were to capture the capital of Kyiv, uh, decapitate the political leadership, install their own puppet government, and basically take over Ukraine, not in a direct sense of ruling Ukraine from Moscow, like in the Soviet Union times, but more something like Russian Empire times, in which Ukraine in effect runs itself, but for all the issues of importance to Russia such as foreign economic policy, foreign policy, security policy, et cetera, those things need to be either directed from Moscow, countersigned in Moscow, et cetera. So if we can think of what Russia wanted out of Ukraine, something like what Russia is getting out of Belarus. So Ukraine is like a bigger Belarus. That's what we want. That's what uh, Russia wanted to see. So in a larger sense, when we now think about the territorial concessions, we're thinking, what is Zelensky and the Ukrainians willing to, in effect, give up of their own territory in order to get the Russians to cease fire and to leave. And the answer to that sort of goes into why do states fight? And why are the Ukrainians in effect rejecting any substantive territorial concessions, even though they have said in terms of their official bargaining positions, they're willing to do something like an international resolution uh, for Donetsk and Lugansk areas, as well as Crimea, even though Crimea uh, is a bit more a tougher nut to crack, as it were. So when states fight, big picture, why do they do so? It's because they want something out of the conflict, the value of that thing, 
is more than what they anticipate the cost of that war to be. So when Putin was thinking about the costs of the war in Ukraine, he was thinking, okay, we'll lose this many soldiers, we'll destroy this amount of stuff, we'll get this amount of sanctions. Broadly speaking, those are gonna be all the costs. But if we can make Ukraine into a giant Belarus, my work here on earth is done. That's probably like the, the, the vague thought that was you know, rattling around in that skull. So what, he, what does he realize over the past month? This is gonna be a lot more expensive. So why doesn't the fighting stop? If the fighting was basically to try to figure out how tough is Ukraine, he's figured that out. We also know that in the past uh, couple of weeks, US Congress put uh, forth a $13.6 billion bill that's already been signed by, the, by President Biden, which includes uh, roughly $6.5 billion in military aid. And the amount of military equipment that is coming to Ukraine, eight, so just in the last one I'm now reading, 800 Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, 2,000 Javelin, 1,000 light anti-armor weapons, 6,000 anti-armor systems, AT4, uh, loitering munitions, 20 million rounds of ammunition, on and on and on. So there's a lot of stuff. And so what's clear is that, in essence, we know that Ukraine can fight fairly well in terms of their tactics, in terms of their motivation to fight. The Ukrainian, the Russians, not as much. The Ukrainians are about to get clearly $800 million a week of military equipment, so they're gonna be able to fight a long time. So we clearly understand the relative strengths of these two. The fighting has reached a stalemate. So when we think then about why does the war seem to go on for an indefinite period, we can think about what political scientists call the commitment problem. And in a sense, what the Russians are afraid of is that if they have peace with the Ukrainians right now, they make any sort of deal. What is to stop the Ukrainians from continuing to get billions of military aid per week indefinitely? What is to stop the Ukrainians from getting you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of humanitarian aid per month? What is to stop them from joining the EU? What is to stop them from all of these different things that would allow Ukraine, in essence, to look at the territorial revision that it signed, let's say, in March 2022 and say, that was when you caught us relatively unaware. We have rebuilt for all this time and we're going to go after you right now. We are going to take back our territory by force, particularly Donetsk and Lugansk. So in essence, what the Russians are in a position is they cannot trust without any enforcement mechanism that they'll agree to in order to allow Ukraine to be, because they're afraid that Ukraine will continue to essentially get external assistance. Same thing on the Ukrainian side. They're afraid that if they give up any amount of territory to the Russians, they say, okay, you, we'll take back the rest of the country, but uh, Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics, that we recognize as independent. This only says to the Russians, you see, you fight a war for long enough, you'll get the other side to agree to your point of view. And if you get them to agree to your point of view, well, then the next war is not gonna be as poorly fought as the last one. So because both sides are not yet agreed to any sort of external enforcement mechanism, they continue to fight. Because at this point, the Ukrainians have offered the Russians, if you, you know, and Zelensky has said very explicitly that we need a joint security guarantee between ourselves, but that is guaranteed by the Turks, the Turkish, 
the French, the Germans, the British, and the Americans. And so the thing that would make the, the Ukrainians happy is if they were able to bring in basically all of their NATO friends in order to enforce that peace on an indefinite basis. But from the Russian side, to allow NATO an all but membership, in essence, by having these rotating forces would be in effect the failure of failures. I mean, we could say maybe actually Ukraine and NATO would be even worse, but that was never available from the get-go. So this would basically be amongst realistic outcomes, the very worst one, because it would show that Ukraine was able to get NATO to come to its assistance on an indefinite basis. And so in that regard, we're going to see fighting until one of these sides collapse. It could be the Ukrainians, because the Russians are about to, and what, what we're seeing right now in Mariupol defines it, is the destruction of all of their cities. It could be the Russians, not so much from, let's say maybe the logistics, they can't regroup, reinforce, you know, rethink what it is that they're doing in the field, but it could be that their economy collapses first. So that's why in a sense, we're not getting either territorial concessions by the Ukrainians, because they don't wanna set the precedent that this is going to happen again, and we don't get any uh, ceasefire by the Russians because that would indicate the total failure of their efforts to impose their will on the Ukrainians. And, be, and because both sides don't trust each other into the future, not to revise any, ter any deal that's struck now, we will see continued fighting. Well, it's a pretty grim outlook. Um, and I, but I know you've mentioned in the past the you know, the sort of the central question here, or one of the central question is which side can rearm first slash which side sort of collapses first. Um, yeah, and so I get I, maybe two not directly related questions, but uh, just to, before we wrap up here is um, one where maybe we're sort of where you see both sides now in terms of that, that level of exhaustion. Um, you know, I know you, Ukraine has a definite, they have a, uh, a manpower cap. They, they don't have the same number of people. Um, so all the weapons in the world don't really help you if you have nobody to fire them. Although on the flip side, I noted, I think yesterday or, or made early this morning, there was a, uh, a report that Russia's only tank manufacturer was shutting down because they were out of parts. So I, so I wonder if, you know, if, if some of the things coming out suggest which side might be a little bit closer to that point of exhaustion. And then second question is back to the, the concessions. Uh, I think I also, um, saw that Zelensky had mentioned any agreement he would put to the Ukrainian people. So, um, you know, in a sort of a referendum type thing. So could there potentially be a situation, though, where Zelensky and Putin agree to something, Zelensky puts it out to the Ukrainian people, and they say no? Uh, what, what happens at that point if, uh, if it comes to that? So sure. So in terms of... Um which side will get exhausted first. Uh, we, we've seen the Russians are repositioning forces from basically everywhere. Recalling the mercenaries, uh, like you know, the, the private military and security company, Wagner uh, and Liga from their places in uh, Central African Republic, Mali, you know, it's just Sub-Saharan Africa. They're bringing in the foreign fighters from Libya, recruiting the Syrians, bringing in the South Ossetians, uh, recalling troops from peacekeeping duties in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, bringing other troops in from um, 
both Syria as well as like the Eastern Military District. So clearly this is the last roll of the dice for, for both sides. I think both sides have recognized that between Western arms and the rest of what Russia has available, and we've seen estimates, you know, the Pentagon says they give a briefing every day that the Russians have something like just under 90% of their uh, committed forces, you know, the 190,000 still available to them and 75% of like the total combat forces of the country, like in theater or around theater right now. All that said, if you're bringing people in from the other end of the earth, that's not like a long-term issue. Like you're trying to win now so that you can um, basically stop the fighting ahead of total collapse. And this is in fact, so part of this is like, why are they also trying to break Mariupol? Uh, they're trying to break Mariupol so that they can, you know, credibly say at the negotiating table, we have the entire Sea of Azov as a domestic water. Like that's a thing that's at the negotiating table that they think will force the Ukrainians into territorial concessions. Um, and the Ukrainians are clearly trying to hold out, not for like the next year, but this is something that is going to be for like a month or two. Because what they're trying to do is at the same time that the Russian military industrial complex is starting to falter, just in a general sense, what they're trying to do is basically convey and signal to the troops in the field, if you think, if you think things have been bad for the past month, we're going to get replenished on an indefinite basis. And once you start to get like loitering munitions, like anything else, and the, the, the armed drones and all those sorts of things, none of those things are by themselves game changers, but they suggested the troops in the field, things are getting more lethal, they're getting more iterated, they're getting more common. That in essence suggests, if I survive the first month, my chances of surviving the next two are limited. And that is what the Ukrainians are trying to do, is trying to get the Russian soldiers and officers in the field to not think that any sort of uh, survival, much less victory, is at hand. And so that's basically which side is going to collapse first. The Ukrainians can win every engagement thereafter, and Russia can still win the war by just destroying every single city that Ukraine has. Like, that's totally possible. Um, again, we're not going to see much more external intervention in terms of boots on the ground unless the Russians make the decision that the only thing that can save their soldiers is starting to bomb like the convoys inside you inside like Poland or something. At that point, we're in a different universe, but let's keep it to like the universe that we currently live in. Ultimately, this war is going to continue, but it's not going to be indefinite. Stalemate doesn't mean that we're going to see a year long war because the amount of weaponry coming in on one side. And the amount of basically like ability to hold on to a domestic economy on the other side, clearly we're seeing the limits of it. And one side, the Ukrainian side, is just going to be getting more stuff like forever. So we are going to see much more violence in this phase, but we're not going to see basically, I, at least I think, a year long war. One side is going to recognize that external intervention in terms of like external security guarantees is going to be worth more than truly the collapse of one or the other country. So in terms of what we're seeing in terms of the Russian military industrial complex, you know, that was the whole point of sanctions is that sanctions don't say like you cease to exist, but what you are able to do starts to decline rapidly over time. They will throw everything that they have at this, the Russians will throw everything they have at this war. There's no second war coming. 
Um, there may be a second war in the future, depending on how this one turns out and whether Russia gets reintegrated into international affairs or not. But that's that's the whole point of this, uh, the, the sanctions regime, is to let the Russians know you have like, what, a month of imports left, two months of imports left, and at that point, um, you know, you're going to be throwing rocks. So, um, don't know if that answered the question because uh, I started to yammer on, but at least that's that's my position. Yeah, no, no, it did. Thank you. And then, um, real quickly here before we end is the uh, on the on the Ukrainian side. You know, Zelensky had said he would sort of put a resolution to the conflict to the Ukrainians. You know, what if what if the people say no? Um, what do, you, what do you think happens? Well, one, do you think they would say no if, if like, if Zelensky thinks he's got something that he can he can give to his population? Do you think do you think his judgment would be divergent enough that he might make a mistake in that? But two, you know, say that happened and they reject the referendum, what happens at that point? So, in essence, what Zelensky is saying, and this is again one of the one of the great phrases from uh, political science, is uh, a two level game. What Zelensky is saying to the Russians is, you know, basically the, the negotiate the Ukrainian negotiators, the Russian negotiators, our entire people hate you and are willing to kill you with their bare hands. So, like, that's our initial starting position in terms of negotiations. Uh, we will kill you with our bare hands. Uh, we've demonstrated this on the battlefield for the last month. If you give us uh, an option of surrender or nothing, we can put that to the people and the people will vote against it 100 to 1, 100 to 0. So, in essence, what Zelensky is saying is that any any plausible, credible offer from the Russians has to meet with approval from the Ukrainian people, because he's not going to take anything to the Ukrainian people that involves, you know, humiliating territorial concessions, uh, concessions on Ukraine's ability to exist as a sovereign state, so on and so forth. He's also making a dig at the Russians on. You know, he's willing to face the people with the results of the war and with the results of the negotiation. Is Putin willing to face the people with what he's produced over the course of the war? So, in essence, Zelensky is saying, I'm happy to engage in the democratic process. He's, but he's saying in reality, if you don't give a real offer or a real set of offers as to what peace will look like, I will reject it in a sense out of hand by asking the Ukrainian people. And Ukrainian people we know are going to say no to anything, uh, of, like anything that's not real, not substantive. And so, of course, that's a bargaining ploy in and of itself. No, that that's a a great perspective, and I, I uh, that sort of echoes what a lot of people have said about Putin in the past, right? Like he's playing six dimensional chess or something. But you know, here here President Zelensky is is I I don't know playing him in his own game or trying to beat him in his own game. Um, yeah, so pro probably probably in a more effective fashion. Yeah, six dimensional chess only works when like no one's talking back to you. So like, yeah, no, everything's yeah. a wizard when like everything you say is like, yeah, boss, couldn't have said it better myself. Then like literally all ideas are Rube, become Rube, Rube Goldberg contraptions over time. And that's like, that's the six dimensional chess. But what we can also see what what has happened over the past month is that the West basically did two things that they didn't do in all of Russia's previous uh, wars slash you know large special operations, which is have a substantive sanctions coalition 
and provide weapons to one of the sides. And we've seen basically Russia get deglobalized in a month and um, only be able to get military gains by engaging in, let's say, uh, pre-modern uh, tactics of just destroying cities until the other side gives up, which itself has not yeah. been successful. No, and yeah, this is sort of tangential, but I, you know, it, it, it's a, it is sort of amazing to to see something that we've seen so many times in history, which is, you know, attempting to break the morale of a people by just indiscriminately killing all of them. And I, it almost never works. All you do is harden the resistance against you and make them more determined. So I'm not really sure what, you know, if, if they're just doing this because they don't have anything left in the playbook, because it's, it's, uh, it's historically unlikely to work. Um, you know, given, given the relative incompetence of basically their, their main idea, it reminds me of one of the great, great lines from uh, the Simpsons. Uh, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> yeah, I, on another tangential channel, I, I've seen a lot of Simpsons memes popping up on social media about how the Simpsons have largely predicted, you know, many, much of this stuff, yeah. um, uh, as well as many other world events. So maybe we should all be watching the Simpsons a lot more closely to figure out how things are going to go. Okay, right on. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I think that's a, obviously, a, I think we've hit a stopping point now. If we're, yeah. we're going into the Simpsons. Um, but, uh, hey, no, maybe maybe the Simpsons is PME. That might be a good elective to offer next year. Oh, my so, God. Uh, I'm, I'm there. You're there? Okay. I'll sign you up. Uh, all right. Well, again, thank you, Dr. Uh, Dr. Weber, very much for your time. I know you're extremely busy, but it's always great to get your insights. And to our audience, hope you've enjoyed this second episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War. And, again, we're going to continue to do this on a as uh, as regular basis as we can but hopefully for not too long a duration um so that uh if uh, if we stop doing these that means the world's gone to hopefully a better condition than it is right now so again thank you dr Weber. yeah thank you dr Weber. thank you major brown take care